so good to be back with all of you again after our annual study break and several weeks of wrestle vacation with my wife Gwen and also part of that with our family. And I trust that you also have had time to rest and to recalibrate a little bit this summer to cultivate your relationship with the Lord and also with your loved ones. And I especially want to thank you uh, for giving of your time and your abilities and the financial resources that God's blessed you with in the support of the mission and ministry of our church. Your investment in the ministry of our church, and in particular, some of you giving of your time in leading and supporting our children and youth at our various children's and youth and sports camps and mission trips this summer has not been in vain. We celebrate that 35 children and youth and uh, came to faith in Christ this summer and also and also 33 people um, were baptized as well. Okay, so this weekend we're starting a new series of messages on the book of Revelation. Now, I'm sure you're aware that many people are struggling greatly with anxiety and fear, anger and discouragement over the state of our nation and our world, including wars and rumors of war, the growing polarization of worldviews and politics and education, the role of government in media and human and religious freedom, and all of the implications and uncertainties around the movement toward digital currencies and artificial intelligence, to name just a few of the issues. Now, when we get fearful, fear and certainty can drive people to take their eyes off Jesus and the mission that he's called us to, instead to follow those who often sensationalize current events and try really hard to somehow make current events fit biblical prophecies to justify their views and beliefs. Some of you will remember the Y2K crisis that happened about 25 years ago, during which we experienced something very similar to what we see happening today. You see, at that time, it was determined that there was a glitch in computers, I won't go into explaining all that, that would cause computers all over the world to either freeze or to shut down, endangering lives, crippling financial institutions, disrupting transportation, energy supplies, food, water, and other necessities. Some Christian authors began to write books and articles warning that this could be a worldwide conspiracy toward a cashless society, uh, a one-world government, the rise of the Antichrist. Some even provided advice on how to prepare and survive should things play out as anticipated. Now, some experts estimated a power failure between 4 to 13 months, which would have been disastrous. Other experts were far more optimistic that all the computers would be fixed and they'd be compliant by the deadline. But many began questioning 
the reliability of such reports and the accuracy of such reports coming from government and industry. People were anxious. They were confused. They didn't know who to believe or trust. Now, does that all sound a little familiar to what we see happening around us today? Now, think back a little further to the Christians who experienced and lived through the death and the destruction of World War I, which took more than an estimated 13 million lives. Think about the Christians who experienced and lived through the death and destruction of World War II, which took, took over an estimated 60 to 80 million people. <clears throat> As they read Jesus' prophetic words in Matthew 24 and Revelation 6 to 20, I have absolutely no doubt that they experienced the same uncertainty and fear that many are experiencing today, and they were convinced that this was it. The world as they knew it was about to end, and that Jesus was coming again. Think of the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, where the United States and the Soviet Union at that time came ever so close to all-out nuclear war. I still remember as a little guy hearing my dad and his friends talking for hours into the evening, convinced that this was it. This was the end of civilization. I want to be very clear that in no way am I saying that those who believe and teach that we are in the last days are wrong or misguided. They could very well be right. What I am saying is we don't know when Jesus will return. We know he will, amen? But we don't know when he will return or how it's all going to play out before he comes. Oh yes, we can speculate. And godly biblical scholars have speculated for hundreds of years. But we know they haven't agreed with one another. Each theological camp teaches with great certainty, like they have the book of Revelation all figured out, that they're right and everyone else is wrong or just greatly misguided. And yet we must acknowledge that up to this point in time, all the speculation has been wrong. We're still waiting for Jesus to come. And let's be honest, in the area of biblical prophecy, things are not always as clear as some would have us believe. For any teacher to say or suggest they got it all figured out is to go far beyond what can be supported by the scriptures. Brian Clark says, one of the convictions I have developed over the years is that when something in the Bible is unclear, it's unclear for a reason. In other words, God doesn't have a communication problem. What he wants to make clear, he is fully capable of making clear. So if something is unclear, it is unclear for a reason, even though we may not know the reason. And that is my concern. 
Perhaps God didn't want us to do with the prophetic scriptures what we're so prone to do with it, and that is to set up timelines and charts and to be so distracted by it all and in some cases become so fearful and reactionary to it all that we take our eyes off Jesus and the mission that he's called us to focus on. Which, by the way, is the main theme and the point of the book of Revelation. And so it's with that in mind that we're going to take us through the book of Revelation and we're going to use the same approach to study the scriptures that we did when we went through the book of Romans and the book of Exodus. Recently, when someone heard we were doing Revelation, they said, boy, you don't shy away from the tough ones, do you? And I just smiled and said, pray for us. Because based on what I experienced when I preached through Revelation 25 years ago, we're going to need your prayers. And so with that in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. Would you just stand? Heavenly Father, we affirm our deep conviction that your word is true and trustworthy. And Lord, even though there are segments of your word that are less clear and that we don't always understand, we believe you have a good reason, a good purpose for that too. And so Lord, as we embark in this study on the wonderful revelation of your son Jesus, oh Lord, we ask for your anointing and your help in communicating your truth in simplicity. And I pray, Lord, that you would provide clarity and insight and wisdom to all of us from the truth of your word, that you would grant us the grace to love and be respectful to one another when we don't agree in disputable matters. And most importantly, that we would hear what you're saying to us and that we would do what you're calling us to do. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, you may be seated. So put on your seatbelt and open your Bibles to the first chapter of Revelation and follow along with me as I read the first few verses. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God, and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Now the writer of this letter or book is the Apostle John, who under the inspiration and guidance of God the Holy Spirit, wrote down what he saw, what he heard and experienced and what he was told to write down for the people, and in particular, the seven churches located in ancient Asia Minor, in what is now known as Turkey, which is north of Israel and east of Greece and Italy. John was unable to visit these churches because he had been banished by the Roman government to an island called Patmos, for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and refusing 
to bow down to Caesar. Now this book has three focuses. First of all, it's a letter. Look at verse 19. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. It's a letter that John wrote for a specific people living in specific cities at a specific time in history to meet specific needs. And what this means is we must take seriously the specific historical context if we are to rightly understand the message and the purpose of this book. John wrote a pastoral letter to the people that he had been pastoring about the issues they were facing. And perhaps the greatest issue they were facing is intense persecution. They were being imprisoned, they were being tortured, they were even being put to death because of their devotion to Jesus Christ and refusing to say that Caesar is Lord. And one of the things they desperately needed was the assurance that their allegiance to Christ and the mission that they were giving their lives to would be worth dying for. That in the end, Jesus would be victorious. So this book is a letter. Secondly, it includes prophecy. In verse 19, John was also told to write what will take place later, which is prophecy. Prophecy includes predictions about the future, but it also includes preaching or declaring a word from God in the present. For example, in chapters 2 and 3, we find Jesus giving a very strong prophetic word to each of the seven churches and as a result to each of us today. That's coming up next, next week. We're going to start looking at the message he gave to these churches. And so the book is a letter and it's a prophecy. And thirdly, the book is a revelation. Again, in verse 19, John was told to write what you have seen. So what did John see in chapter 1? Well, he was given a vision of the glorified Christ. Now, the Greek word for revelation is apocalypsis, from which we get the word apocalypse. Now, today, when we hear the word apocalypse, we immediately think of something terrible or something catastrophic. We think of doomsday-type movies involving devastating tsunamis or devastating earthquakes or terrorist bombings. But in the first century, apocalypse meant to reveal or to pull back the curtain or to unveil, like we unveil a statue, for example, or a painting. It is lifting the cover, pulling back the curtain and revealing to us the majesty and the glory of Jesus in a way we haven't seen him before. And that is why John reminds us in verse 3 that if we will read this book personally or out loud to others as was the case in the early church or we hear it read and we take it to heart and live it out in our lives, 
we will be personally blessed, but also will be blessed by God. Now look at verse 4. John writes to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is faith, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. <clears throat> this is a greeting from the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. You see, there are those who do not believe in the Trinity because the word Trinity is not in the Bible, which is true. But neither is the word hamburger in the Bible. And yet we all know that hamburgers exist, and I quite enjoy them from time to time. Well, in the greeting that I just read, the Trinity or the triune God is very much evident. The phrase from him who is and who is to come, refers to the eternal triune God and Father. God the Spirit is mentioned next in verse 4. And the third greeting comes from Jesus Christ, God the Son. And John devotes the rest of this chapter to describing Jesus, God the Son. In verse 5 and 6, he describes the Jesus that he knew. The Jesus he talked with and walked with when Jesus was on earth. In verse 5 he says, Jesus is the faithful witness. In other words, Jesus represented his heavenly father perfectly when he was on earth. He spoke truthfully of who God is and why he came into the world. Jesus is the truth and so we can count on what he says and what he promises as being true. John also refers to Jesus as the firstborn from the dead. That's reference to his resurrection. He's the first one to rise from the dead in glory with a glorified body. For example, when Lazarus was raised from the dead by Jesus, he continued to live as a human being and one day he died again. Not so Jesus. When he was raised, he was glorified and he will never die again. In fact, all who trust in him will one day receive the same glorified body as Jesus. Because Jesus lives, we too shall live eternally with him in heaven. John goes on to say that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. In John's day, kings held all the power. And so when John says that Jesus is ruler over kings, he means Jesus is Lord over every source of power. All those who hold political power presidents and prime ministers, all those who are in high position or have enormous possessions or immense popularity on this world. In other words, all those that we tend to revere, we tend to look up to and praise and tend to esteem in our culture. Jesus is ruler over them all, whether they know it or not. And one day, all the kings and the dignitaries and the high and mighty people will join the rest of us 
in bowing down and kneeling before Jesus and acknowledging that he is Lord. In verse 5 to 8, John continues to describe and lift up Jesus to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Jesus is not only the faithful witness or our prophet, the firstborn from the dead or our priest, and the ruler of the kings of the earth or our king and lord, but he also loves us. Romans 5.8 tells us that he died for us while we were yet sinners. Even while we had no love for him, perhaps we even thought of him as our enemy. That is the depth of his love for us. Jesus has our best interests at heart. No matter, and no matter what it is we endure, no matter how difficult the circumstances we face, Jesus always has and always will love us and be with us. And then fifthly, John goes on to say in verse 5 that Jesus also freed us from our sins by his blood. While we were yet sinners, Jesus, the lover of our souls, chose to take on human flesh, to come to our planet and allow himself to be nailed to a cross in order to release us, to free us once and for all of all of our guilt and condemnation and make a way for us to become the sons and daughters of God. And in verse 7, John indicates one day Jesus is coming again and those who reject his love and his grace will mourn with regret for having rejected him. And I just want to say to anyone here, if you do not know personally the Jesus that we're talking about and that we read about in the scriptures, I challenge you not to leave here, but to seek out one of the prayer counselors at the end of this service. They would love to show you how you can become a friend of the Lord. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago in verse 5 and 6, John describes the Jesus that he knew when Jesus was on earth, when he walked with him and talked with him. However, verse 9 tells us that while John was on the Isle of Patmos, God revealed to him through a vision the glorified Christ, which John hadn't seen. John says in verse 10, on the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, He was basically possessed by the Spirit, folks. And he says, I heard a loud voice like a trumpet. And I turned around. See, this isn't some kind of, you know, some kind of trance or something. He was very much conscious. He turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned and saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. Now the phrase son of man is clearly referring to Jesus. 
Because Jesus often referred to himself this way in the Gospels. And then if you look down in verse 20, it tells us that the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches that John's writing to, which are representative of all churches, not only then, but now. And so in his vision, John sees Jesus in the midst of the churches, which reminds us that Jesus is not merely the head of the local church as its Lord and its King, but is actively and truly present in and among the local church as our Savior, our friend, and our guide. In other words, Jesus is not distant from us, his church. He is here right now among us in this place. Do you believe that? He is here. And he invites us to look at what John saw and wrote down. John begins in verse 14 by describing Jesus' hair. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. Now in our day, white hair is generally something to be avoided. It's a sign of aging and people hate signs of growing old because sadly in our culture, there is diminishing respect for the elderly. The elderly are viewed as outdated and to be patronized rather than respected and pursued for their wisdom and experience. But the Bible has a much different view about white hair. In the scriptures, to have white hair was to be a God-like person. Proverbs 16.31 says, Gray hair is a crown of splendor. It is attained in the way of righteousness. I mean, some of you may want to frame that particular verse and put it above your mirror. Now, one of the titles given to the Lord in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, is that he is the ancient of days, which indicates not only that he is God, but that he is the truth and the source of all wisdom. So here's the question. Anyone here need wisdom? I challenge all of us to ask God often for wisdom, who according to James chapter 1 verse 5, wants to give it to us generously if we ask. Sometime this week, when you don't know what to say or do, and trust me, there will be a time when you won't know what to say or do. Just stop. Turn to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord Jesus, please give me wisdom right now. And then John describes the eyes of Jesus as being like a blazing fire. You've probably noticed there are certain pairs of eyes that cause us to behave differently when they are focused on us. Some hockey players, they play differently when the ref's eyes are on them. Some students study and behave differently when the teacher's eyes or their mother's eyes are on them. Some people drive differently when the police officer's eyes are on them, but then it's usually too late. 
Now, when John says the eyes of Jesus are like blazing fire, he's saying Jesus is constantly watching. He misses nothing. And they are fire because fire purifies. The Bible often uses the image of fire as that of uh, that which purifies. In the same way that a refiner refines gold and removes all of the dross until he can see his face or his image in that gold, so Jesus wants to refine our character so that his character is visible in us. And then next, John describes the Lord's feet. In verse 15 reads, his feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace. Once again, this image um, comes from the Old Testament. Daniel had a dream of King Nebuchadnezzar as a statue made of very powerful uh, metals, except for the feet of the statue. The statue had feet of clay. And because Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom had feet of clay, it was ultimately destroyed. It was built on shaky ground. And here's the point. Anything that is built on something other than the Lord and the kingdom of God is built on shaky ground. If you build your life on money and possessions, on position and power or fame, whatever it is, It is temporary. And one day these things are going to be left behind. And they're going to rot or rust or burn. But the Jesus that John describes here in Revelation 1 has feet made of bronze. An image of an unshakable foundation. The hymn writer put it this way. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Anybody here ever get anxious? We got any nail biters here? Well, here's the thing. When you're trusting, you're not worrying. When you're worrying, you're not trusting. What you need is a solid foundation. What you need is someone you can rest your whole weight on, that you can put your whole trust in. And that foundation, that someone, that solid rock is Jesus. John goes on to describe the voice of the Lord. And he says his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In that day, we're, you know, our, our culture, our society... Lots of noise. Back then, noise had to come more natural. You know, the rushing water of a waterfall or thunder, etc. And he says his voice was like that of sound of rushing waters. You know, God speaks to us with different kinds of voices or tone of voice. Most of the time he speaks to us with a whisper, a still small voice. But if we're preoccupied or if we're walking in sin, he may shout at us. 
like a trumpet or a roaring river or a waterfall to get our attention. And he does that because he has our best interests at heart. And so when a father holds his newborn child for the very first time, and he marvels at how wonderfully formed this little one is, or when a physician begins to understand the incredible design and complexity of the human body, from the cleansing function of the red blood cells to the awesome potential of the human brain, suddenly he hears the shout of God. And he wakes up to the reality of God. For others, God may shout at you through a crisis. God doesn't necessarily create the crisis, but he may allow it to come our way to get our attention. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who said, you know, I never believed in God Or I never took God very seriously. Or I never really pursued God until my spouse left me. Until everything I had worked for went down the tube. Until my doctor told me something disturbing showed up in the x-rays. Or my boss told me my services were no longer needed. I mean, these are only some of the ways God may shout at us to get our attention, to wake us up to Him, His will for our lives. The question is, have you been listening for the voice of God? The next image John saw is Jesus' right hand. In John's day, a soldier with a sword in his right hand was ready to fight. He was ready for action. And when John says in verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars, which by the way refers to the pastors or the leaders of the seven churches. What's being said here to the seven churches and to all of God's people actually is in the midst of your persecution, your suffering, your disappointment in life. Know that you're not alone. I am with you And in me, you have true safety and security. Not what the world may offer you, but what I offer you. You see, all the stuff that we tend to gather around ourselves as forms of security, John lost. He lost his relationships, he lost his job, his home, his position. His title, everything was gone when he got banished to this island. He was alone on an island for prisoners, and all that he had was Jesus. And yet it was during this time of being alone that John heard and experienced Jesus like through this vision that he would never forget. And where he discovered that Jesus is more than enough. Church, you won't know inner peace and joy. Or be all that God created you to be until you find your identity and your security and safety in him. 
and him alone. And then John moves on to the next image, the mouth of our master. He says, coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. The sword out of his mouth is really his invitation to find strength and confidence to live God-honoring lives by resting in the truth and the authority of his word. In John's day, a sword was a means of exercising authority. Whoever had the sword was in charge and had power. In the same way, words often have power, even in the human level. So the question is, whose words will you allow to carry weight or authority or have power in your life? For example, let's say that your boss or perhaps even your parents are not for you. Let's say that your peers at school or at work belittle you. Or that your sibling or your child or your close friend has canceled you or ghosted you. Do you still matter? Are you still loved? Who carries the sword? Whose words have authority over you, power in your life? Well, in this beautiful picture of our Savior, John says, in Jesus, we have someone whose words are true. Someone who has the power and the authority to back up what he says. And so you can totally trust what Jesus says about you. And you can rest in him. Others may say or imply that you have no value, but Jesus says you are God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do his good work. So who are you going to put your trust in? What the world says or what Jesus says? Others may say or imply that you'll never amount to anything. But God says you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. Who are you going to believe? The world or the Lord? John challenges us to listen to only one voice, Jesus, the one with the sword, the one through true authority. So there you have it, a very powerful description of the glorified Christ. Now verse 17 says that John is so blown away by it all that he falls at the feet of Jesus as though dead. And I have no doubt that we would find ourselves doing exactly the same if we saw what John saw. If we saw Jesus face to face in all of his glory, our pride would melt and our lives would never be the same. There would be no more envying each other. There would be no more competing against one another. There'd be no more concern about what others think. Oh my goodness, I'm going to fall on the floor. What are people going to think? None of that. 
There be no more picking on one another, no one, no more slandering one another, no more throwing each other under the bus. No, we'd be all on our face before Jesus, surrendering our lives totally to him and everything that matters to us, we'd be giving to him. We would experience a revival without question. And so I want to close with this. You know, as Christians, we believe what the Bible says, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We believe this and we confess this with our tongues and with our voices. But here's my question to those of us who say we are followers of Christ. Do our lives... Do our values, our priorities and our lifestyles align with what we say we believe? If someone were to accuse us of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict us? Max Licata writes, for some, Jesus is just a good luck charm. For some, he's the rabbit's foot redeemer, pocket-sized, handy, easily packaged. His specialty is getting you out of a jam. You need a parking space? Rub the redeemer. You need help on a quiz? Pull out the rabbit's foot. No need to have a relationship with him. No need to love him. Just keep him in your pocket for emergencies. For others, he's the Aladdin's lamp redeemer. New jobs, pink Cadillacs, and cruises. Your wish is his command. And what's more, he conveniently re-enters the lamp when you don't want him around. For others, Jesus is a price is right redeemer. All right, Jesus, let's make a deal. For 52 Sundays a year, I'll go to church and endure any sermon that you throw at me. In exchange, you give me what's behind pearly gate number three. The rabbit's foot redeemer, the Aladdin's lamp redeemer, the price is right redeemer. Few demands, no challenges, no need to sacrifice, no need for commitment or relationship. Is that who Jesus is to you? Friends, that's not the Jesus that John describes here in Revelation 1. No, he is the ancient of days. He is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is far greater and more powerful than any earthly king, president, judge, CEO, and boss, and whose wisdom is far beyond anything in this world. He is the truth, the Redeemer and Lord, 
the way to peace with God and the very source of life and love itself, who loves us with an everlasting love, who has our best interests at heart and is working all things together for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory. He wants to save us from our sins by his grace and our our regrets. And he wants to forgive us and he wants to live in and through us and empower us to live the life that he created and ordained for us to live. This is the Jesus that we know and love and serve. This is the Jesus who is worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. This is the Jesus who is worthy of all of our worship and total devotion. You know, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, God says, See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. You choose. Then he goes on to say, now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, that you may listen to his voice and hold fast to him. In this passage, God implores his people and he implores us to give him first place in our lives ahead of everyone and everything else, including our marriages, our families, our friendships, our career, our jobs, our education, or any other earthly endeavor, because he knows when we do so, and we come to the end of our lives, we will not only have lived the full and the fulfilling life that he created for us to live and experience, but we will have no regrets. None. I love the way that Deuteronomy 30 includes these six words near the end of the chapter. For the Lord is your life. Let that wash over you for a moment. For the Lord is your life. The Lord doesn't say your marriage is your life or getting married is your life. It doesn't say your family is your life or having a family is your life. It doesn't say your career or your ministry or your personal aspirations and goals or your possessions or your position, your fame or a life of pleasure is your life. No, he is our life. And you see, that is what we need to understand and embrace to the core of our being as we face an uncertain future, as we're tempted to cave in and compromise and and let the world squeeze us into its mold or to give our lives to something that just won't last. See, one day your position at the office is going to go away. Someone's going to take over your position. 
They're going to move into your office and they're going to throw your business cards in the trash. No matter how successful you've been, someday the spotlight's going to shift from you to someone else. But here's the thing. If you've been pursuing a friendship with Jesus and he is your life, when the spotlight no longer focuses on you, you're going to be just fine because Jesus will be enough. He will be. Would you please stand? Let's just go before the Lord and ask those two questions we become accustomed to asking. Lord, what are you saying to me? What are you calling me to do about it? And then we'll close in a song of response.